All right, so Book of Amos. Book of Amos is one of the most readily relevant books for our age. Uh, Amos is speaking to Israel, and he the 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 kinds of sins and temptations and false beliefs that he exposes among the Israelites in this book are very similar, are much of the same sins and temptations and false beliefs that we are tempted to uh, today, not just in our world, but especially in our church, especially the Western church. Now, that may not get you super excited to hear this sermon. Oh, great, we're going to talk about all the ways we fail. Well, yes, we do that to a degree each week, but as we all know in the medical field, if we get diagnosed wrongly for a physical ailment or condition, uh, the, the solution we are given uh, can not only be wrong, it can also be very harmful and can hurt us if, if we are diagnosed incorrectly. And similarly, in our walk with God, if we do not understand our condition rightly, if we do not understand who God is rightly and how we can approach him, we are led to false conclusions, false assurances, and even a false salvation. And so one of the things the prophets do well, including Amos, is give us piercing insight into our true condition. Um, they speak prophetically into the real situation, who we really are uh, before God, who God really is. Um, so we'll see that today. So we're going to, let's get into this. Um, as for the last couple weeks, as with the last couple weeks, as we go through these prophets, we're taking one book a week. We're not going to read the whole book, uh, but we'll cover some significant passages. So we'll start at the beginning today. Amos 1, 1. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Now, you may remember the names of these two kings from a couple weeks ago. Uh, these are the same kings, two of the same kings mentioned in Hosea. Uh, they're also mentioned in Isaiah. So Amos is prophesying, speaking around the same time as Hosea and Isaiah. And he's speaking to the northern kingdom of Israel. If you remember, Israel is split into two kings at this, kingdoms at this point, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Okay, continuing on, verse 2. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. And so right away, we are given a picture of God as a mighty lion. If you think about a lion roar, um, it's something that uh, startles you, right? I don't know if any of you have actually heard a lion roar in person, maybe at the zoo, uh, but if, you've, if you're out in the wild in Africa and you hear a lion roar, uh, no matter what situation you're in, it's a fearful thing. Like it gets your attention. And that's the point here. God's message through Amos is meant to arouse his people, wake them up, and get their attention. Uh, his voice pierces through the air, pierces into their lives like a roaring lion. Now, Amos is speaking to, to Israel, but the first chapter is actually directed to Israel's neighbors, all of the nations, all of the people around Israel. So picking up in verse 3, uh, God brings um, in very rhythmic, repeated fashion, brings a series of indictments, judgments against these other kingdoms. 
So we'll just read uh, one of them here, verse three, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kerr, says the Lord. And then we're not going to read all the successive ones, but this continues in this pattern for three transgressions of Gaza and Tyre and Edom. And for four, I will not revoke the punishment. This repeats a, uh, a total of seven times for seven different uh, nations. And one of the things we see in this is that God has authority over all people. He is the Lord of all of the earth, right? Even though he is working here uh, specifically in the lives of, of Israel and, and Judah, his people, his eye is still on all of the peoples. He's not blind to or unconcerned with the things that are going on in the rest of the world. When, when, when people seek him, he will bless them. When they sin against him and, and others, he will hold them accountable as he's doing here. Uh, his sovereignty, his rule, his judgments, his purposes extend to all people. Now, if you're Israel at this point, you've got to, um, to the end of these seven judgments, you're probably feeling pretty good. You're feeling pretty confident, perhaps feeling a little smug. God has just listed every single nation that's around you and brought these indictments on them, these judgments against them. He's even listed Judah. Uh, Judah... The, their, their brothers, the, also the people of God to the south, although they had splits and there was, there was surely division and some dislike between them, God had even brought, spoken of judgments to them. Furthermore, the, the number of judgments here is surely significant. God had, had spoken of seven judgments against seven different nations. And if you know your Bibles, you know that the number seven is often significant. Uh, referring to uh, completion or um, fullness, perfection. So it seems that at this point, God's uh, judgment is complete. The full extent of his um, indictments, his, his words of judgment has, has been spoken. Israel alone has escaped. They are vindicated. They are favored by God, clearly. But then the ball drops. Chapter 2, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. So the same formula now is brought against Israel, except that for them, not just one indictment is listed, but the rest of Amos, all nine chapters, is spent bringing judgment after judgment and accusation against them. Yes, God is holding all the nations accountable. Even though they don't have his law, they are mistreating one another. They are refusing to acknowledge God as the one true God. But God's main concern here is to speak to his chosen people, Israel. His roar is meant to awaken them from their drunken stupor, from their misplaced confidence, from their assuring themselves that because God had done mighty things for them in the past, that they were clear that it did not matter as much how they lived, that God's 
justice and judgment would never come to them. If you think about it, it's kind of like uh, the, you might know the story of when Nathan comes to David in scripture, comes to King David and tells him this fictional story about this rich man who um, took advantage of this poor man and stole this stuff from him. And David's anger is aroused and he, he says, who is this man? Let's, let's go get him. And then Nathan drops the bomb and says, this man is you. We, we often need um, something like this to, to open our eyes to the sin in our own lives. Uh, we're very good at catching the flaws in others. We're very good at excusing and, and justifying our own sin. We don't need any help thinking we're better than others. The whole plank in the eye syndrome. But we do need help in seeing our own sins, our own hypocrisies, we do need help in letting our own lives um, be opened up before the, the double-edged sword of God's word. And so that's what we attempt to do each week. Um, and I, that is our prayer today as we look at this, not to just say, who else needs to hear this? There's a place for that. But first and foremost, how, do, how does God's word speak to me? How do I need to hear this? to be praying that. So God, speak to us here today through your word. So what issue does God have with Israel here? Well, the, the text that we're going to focus in on here is in chapter 5, and then going a little bit into chapter 6, perhaps the key text in the book of Amos. Okay, so let's read it all together, and then we'll unpack it, starting at verse 18, 518. You probably heard parts of this text before. Not necessarily your like coffee mug text. Probably not much of a market for that. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light, as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like the waters in righteousness, like an ever flowing stream. And then jump to the beginning of chapter six. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? So all of these great cities had already fallen to destruction. Or is their territory greater than your territory? O oh, you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. So we see three indictments that God brings against his people all of which are very much alive and well today, both inside and outside of the church. First, they trust in their comfort and wealth 
and ease and supposed security. Now, Amos is speaking uh, sometime in the middle of the 8th century BC, and this um, is significant because this was a time of of much prosperity, of much security, uh, and peace for Israel. And they tended to think that that they had security in this situation. That either this meant God was pleased with them, and they could relax, sit back, or even if God wasn't pleased with them, did it really all matter all that much? Because didn't they have all they needed? Life was fairly easy and good. Things were going their way. And God says, woe to those who are at ease, who feel secure, who put far away the day of disaster. So at the very least, these things, ease and comfort and security and pleasures and wealth, are not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. And thus, they're not worthy of our trust. These are not reasons to, to put off seeking God. Here in our context in the modern West, of course, we, we have an abundance of these things much of the time. We have more comforts and security and, and opportunities and, and pleasures, perhaps, than any people that have ever lived. And with that comes the temptation to just be drunk, in a sense, on those things to be inebriated and unaware of anything else that is going on because of all the riches and comforts and diversions and distractions and to put off God. Perhaps we give tacit devotion to God, tell ourselves that we'll seek him when life gets hard, when we really need him, but what we really want so much of the time is just to be secure and not secure in having to trust God, but having, knowing our security and being able to hold it and touch it. We don't want to be forced to trust God. We want to be able to trust the things that are right in front of us and feel secure in our money and wealth and possessions and relationships and our health. But these things have nothing to offer us if God is against us in judgment. They are false assurances, snares of the devil. At all times, in, in good, in bad, in easy, and hard, we need to let the, the piercing roar of God be the determiner of how we are doing, of who we are. Um, God's word be the judge of our situation. So this is the first indictment God brings against Israel. A second one is this. They were characterized by social injustice. They did not treat one another justly, mercifully, rightly. So just some examples throughout the book. They sold the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trampled the head of the poor in the dust of the earth. They oppressed the poor. They crushed the needy. They afflicted the righteous. They took bribes. They turned aside the needy in the gate. And they dealt deceitfully with false balances. And so God had called his people to to love one another. um, And he had given them many specific laws specific ways in which to do this, to ensure that there was justice among his people. And part of the reason for this was that so they would be a display of God's wisdom and God's presence and God's goodness to all of the nations around them. And many of these laws had to do with giving special attention to the poor and the weak and the needy. But this is 
exactly what the people in Amos' day were not doing. Uh, they were living for themselves. They were unconcerned about the injustices in, amongst them. As long as they were happy, as long as things were going well for them, they, they thought they were content. Now, when the Bible speaks of giving justice to the poor, it usually has in mind those made poor pri- primarily through the unjust systems and unjust actions of people, the, the merciless, compassionate-less um, uh, systems and people in our world, all around us, a- as well as um, has in mind just the broken nature of the world. So the Bible often speaks of orphans and widows as um, being worthy recipients of, of mercy. The Bible speaks very differently about those made poor primarily by their own selfishness and sinfulness. Uh, scripture, as you may know, has nothing positive to say about the sluggard, the one unwilling to work, the one... Um, who squanders everything given to, to him on selfish gain. But the Bible assumes that there will always be those around us um, who are overlooked and mistreated by societies and governments and individuals. And the Bible calls God's people to give special attention to them. And this is something that uh, we in the American West and the American church often find difficult. Um, there, is a, there is a sense of pride and individualism built into us as, as Americans. We value self-sufficiency, not having to rely on others and not having others rely on us. We tend to hold on onto on our possessions pretty tightly um, in ways that we probably don't even realize in ways that people coming from other contexts and other societies and other parts, times throughout history would come in and see, like, obviously see it, and we're like, what? That's just this is how we live. And all of this makes it hard for us, on the one hand, to receive charity, not something we are super good at doing, and on the other hand, to, to give charity. And we tend to overlook and can be slow to react to the needs of those around us. But the Bible is clear that God's people, then and now, are to show compassion and to seek the justice of of others as we have opportunity. Uh, Life as the people of God, life in the church is not every man and woman to himself. Just make sure you're taken care of. It is. Work hard. And do your best to take care of yourself so that you can be generous to others. Because you and others will have times when you're in need. It's just the nature of the broken world we live in. and We are to be stewards of all the things that God gives us. Our time, our wealth, our resources. And to, to serve one another with them. So this is the second indictment God brings against Israel. And then kind of tying this all together, you'll see how this all connects God brings a third indictment against them, and that is this. They thought God could be manipulated with religious formalism. They thought God could be bought off, manipulated with religious formalism. And I want to read these verses again because they're very striking. Verse uh, 521, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. 
and the peace offerings of your fattened animals. I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. So these are all good things. These are things that God had commanded them to do. This is perhaps akin to our gathering regularly with God's people like this, to our reading the Bible and studying the Bible together, to our confessing sin and, and praying for one another and all of these things that we ought to be doing. And God says he hates them. He will not even listen to their songs. And so put this all together. Consider the situation here with the people of Israel. These people trust in their comforts and wealth more than they trust in God. They dismiss their responsibilities to love one another and to show compassion and justice for one another. And then they come to God and assume everything's hunky-dory. They, they think they can just keep up some of these religious practices, give God a couple of hours here and there, and God will be a ple- pleased and appeased and kind of leave the rest of their lives alone. But God cannot be bought or manipulated or tricked. We can't just kind of do a little dance over here for God and then just say, you know, God, God, you're good. I'm just going to keep marching forward with the rest of my life here. Um, And the reason he cannot be bought like this is because that's not the kind of relationship he wants with us. I mean, that's not the kind of relationship we want with really anyone, right? Because it may be a purely business relationship, but that's not the kind of relationship God wants with us. We can't make up for a heart that is cold to God. We can't make up for a failure to wholeheartedly turn to God, for a failure to live justly before God and others by just some Bible reading and prayers. We can't keep him at bay by a little devotion in this one area so that we can keep control over the rest of our lives. And we're not just talking about having areas of our lives where we we continue to battle sin daily and and, and repent and and fight and struggle and uh, need to grow and and, and all of this. That's a part of the Christian life. That's, That's a given. Rather, what we're talking about here is our attempts to control God to not come to him on his terms, to try to game the system and come, figure out a, a different way to come to him where we ultimately re- uh, remain in control. And I would venture to guess that if you know your heart at, at all, you are very familiar with this. Of course, we see it, you know, again, it's easy to see in other people, right? We're like, oh yeah, this person. But I would bet you also know that this is often the state of your own heart as well. Sometimes it's religion we use, like we've been saying. We, we not only do the things that God tells us to do, like gather regularly as a church and, and study our Bibles and, and pray, keep doing those things, but we do them as a way to really not come to God, just as a way to kind of get him off our backs so that we can keep control of the rest of our lives. Perhaps it's not organized religion. Perhaps it's, it's more just a sense of spir- being spiritual and we just feel very passionate or e- emotion- emotional and we, we, 
pray a lot, again, as an attempt to approach God on our own terms. Sometimes it's perhaps uh, just personal morality, just being a good person, or perhaps more often today, just having a sense of, of justice and social morality, social justice. Uh, many people's religion today is being passionately devoted to a cause and just speaking a lot about justice in such a way that it means it's a means of self-justification. And perhaps a cursory reading of this passage would support that, um, that the religious aspect of this, the God word aspect of this doesn't really matter. If only you would treat others kindly. I mean, it says, let justice roll down like the waters. God cares about justice. But he doesn't hate the religious observances in them of themselves. He had actually commanded them. He hates the manner in which they are done with, with no real devotion or submission to God, with no connection to the rest of their lives, a ignoring of justice and righteousness and, and compassion for one another, but just doing this kind of religious dance over here. And so in reality, all of these things, uh, religion, spirituality, morality, social justice, in and of themselves can often be ways we refuse to come to God wholeheartedly on his terms. They're not bad things, but they can often be used as ways to, to buy God off appease him with just this one compartment of our lives so that we can ultimately keep him at arm's length and control him. A lot of good news here, right? So where's, where's the good news in this? Um, honestly, it's hard to even hear this diagnosis. It's hard to read through the book of Amos, if you're honest. It's I mean, you get to chapter nine, you get through eight chapters and eight and a half chapters and there's not really much, much hope. God wants our full and wholehearted devotion. And yet like Israel, we either just ignore him completely in a certain area of our lives or we come to him half-heartedly, only outwardly. Uh, more than likely, we, we constantly are swinging back and forth between these two poles. So God, I know... I don't want to obey you in this. I know you're merciful and gracious, so I'm just going to do my own thing here. And then a little while later, God, I, I feel guilty about my sin. I know that you're a righteous judge, so I'm going to do a little, little uh, religious work over here, give myself a little more um, fervently to uh, going to a Bible study, going to church, praying, whatever, uh, let you know that I'm really serious. And just the roller coaster goes back and forth, back and forth, and uh, we... We wonder where the joy and the freedom that God talks about so much is. Here's the thing. All of these, all of these attempts to approach God on our own terms have a common root. All of them are re reveal a failure to believe God to be good and gracious and merciful and compassionate we do not believe that if we were to give our whole selves to God, he would not only receive us, but would rejoice over us and would withhold no good thing from us. 
We don't actually, in our hearts, no matter what we say, there are parts of our hearts that don't actually believe that. And so either we remain, just stay as far away from him as possible, or we come to him only to make some transaction, to, to buy off his favor, but not really give him our hearts. Because we don't actually think he is good to the core. Uh, theologian and author Sinclair Ferguson writes about this with great insight, um, speaking about legalism. He says, the lie that we now believe is that to glorify God is not, in, is not indeed cannot be, to enjoy him forever, but to lose all joy. That is, if we were to give ourselves completely to God, we don't think that there would be joy in that, but we would lose all joy. Legalism can, therefore, be banished only when we see that the real truth about God is that when we glorify him, we also come to enjoy him forever. And with him, enjoy everything else he has given us. To the unbeliever, this is incomprehensible. But it is a happy first principle of the believer's life. That there is joy unspeakable in glorifying God. And so the answer to both of our rejection of God and our half-hearted attempts to appease God is to see that God is truly good and merciful and gracious, compassionate and kind. And to know that there is life and joy and happiness in, in coming to him, in submitting to him, and in submitting to his commands. So where do we see this in Amos? So far, it's been pretty dark and dire, the picture that Amos gives us. And it is pretty much through nine, eight and a half chapters. And this is fairly typical of the prophets. But throughout, there are glimmers of God's grace. There are glimmers, uh, reminders that mankind's rebellion against God cannot snuff out the hope of God's grace, of God's purposes and promises. And so just a couple examples in Amos before we read the last few verses. Um, in Amos 5, God repeatedly invites Israel to seek me and live. He's calling them, come to me. He's pleading with them, come to me and you will live. And yet they don't. Chapter 4, God recounts all of the ways that he used discipline to try to draw them to himself. And he took away the good things from them in order to draw their hearts from trusting in all of those things. Like, times were not always this good. And yet time and time again, God says, you did not return to me. We get a picture of God broken hearted over his people, broken hearted over the fact that he, they will not come to him and he cannot shower them with his mercy. This is summed up well in Isaiah 65, elsewhere in the prophets where God laments, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people. And then Paul picks this up in Romans. I'm just get this picture of a God do, calling and inviting and wooing and pursuing a rebellious people who will not turn. And yet, as we've seen, there is always this forward-looking promise in the prophets of what God will do, regardless of what the people do. That God will do something, not based on our faithfulness, 
but based on his faithfulness to his promises. And he will restore his people, he will fulfill his purposes, and he will keep his promises. Uh, remember, as, as we, we talked about the, the covenant that God made with Abraham, that God is blessing his people Israel in order to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. And that is a plan that God has been working out from before time began. So here in the last, very last verses, we find um, a glimpse of that, starting in 9, chapter 9, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, who, him who sows the seed. Uh, so the idea is that the land will be very productive. Uh, just as one crop is being um, taken in, the, they're starting to plant another crop. And the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Now, there, there's a lot in here. There's a lot in here that we don't have time to unpack, but I just want to point out two things. First, God has a fail-safe plan to bring great blessing and joy and wealth and comforts and ease on his people. Um, whether you take this text to refer to, to Israel alone or as a sign of what God will do for all of his people, the, the heart and purposes of God towards his people are, are clear, that he desires and he will bless them abundantly. Second, we know from the rest of Scripture that all of these blessings, this fail-safe plan to bless his people, will be accomplished and secured through Jesus alone. Um, and so these very verses, uh, uh, verse uh, 11 is picked up by uh, James, Jesus' brother, uh, a leader in the early church in Acts 15, to help explain the gospel of Jesus going out and being received by non-Jews. Um, it is in Jesus that the God's promise to bring in people from all the nations, to call people from all of the nations of the earth, and to bless all the families of the earth would be secured. Um, God's blessing would not come about because finally, here are a people who got their act together and God just had no choice but to bless them. No, God's blessing would come because he would send Jesus and all of his grace would flow through him, um, through his life, death, and resurrection, through God doing the work that we could not do, um, through our sins being atoned for in him and God uh, extending joyfully his compassion on us. And this work of Jesus, the work that God does in us as we come to him in faith, um, is not only about getting damned sinners into heaven. It's not just a one-time thing that we like, okay, I mean, we can be very much like the Israelites, like, oh, okay, we're the people of God, we're blessed, uh, we're favored, um, let's just Let's just ignore God from here on out because, you know, God's justice doesn't matter anymore. How we live doesn't matter anymore. No, the very work that God is doing in Jesus is about creating people who come to him wholeheartedly 
who come to him um, with full confidence that he would never turn them away. Creating a people who trust God more than their material wealth and comforts, who, who love God, and creating a people who live justly and mercifully before him and others. Um, God, through Jesus, creates these kinds of people. Um, through his spirit working, through changing, regenerating us as we trust in Jesus. And ultimately, this is a picture of the church. This is our, our call. This is what we are to pursue in the realm of God's grace, in the economy of, of grace. And we are to display, like Israel was, the wisdom and the goodness and presence of God to the world. May this be true of us. Let's pray.